the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. We are uh, generally joined by Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy at this hour, and he will be joining us shortly as we are working on getting him. Let me take a call real quick from a very patient listener, Warren in Mesa. Warren, welcome to the show. Yeah, my my question was, isn't the Roe v. Wade the a cornerstone of the living, breathing Constitution? Because... That gives them uh, the ability to try to social, social things and, and uh, international law and other type of things. They try to sneak into the Constitution versus the, uh, you know, the tr- not the traditionalists, but the uh, creation, or not traditional. Yeah, no. Well, the original intent. Uh, yes, that's that. That is the that 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 has been one of the chief complaints, even from many liberal uh, legal scholars. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had her doubts about Roe v. Wade, which is why I said the head of the National uh, NARAL National Abortion Rights Action League. Kate Michaelman uh, had a lot of concern about Ruth Bader Ginsburg when Bill Clinton nominated her because of things she had written about Roe versus Wade. Um, of course, John Hart Eli, maybe the most uh, prominent, uh, nationally prominently uh, well-known uh, law professor at Yale, when Roe versus Wade came out, said this is not constitutional law and doesn't even pretend to be so or it doesn't even attempt to be so. Alan Dershowitz, who has uh, voted for every Democrat he's ever had the chance to vote for, said that it was uh, rested on uh, an infirm uh, on infirm ballast. And, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's either the Constitution – which is what our founders wrote, along with the amendments that people have seen over the years needed to be attached to it through a process the Constitution outlines, or there is constitutional law that you get from the Anthony Kennedys of the world, which tell us that the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, meaning of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Going in another direction on that and trying to restore some sense of uh, moderation to um, to the understanding of our legal world is the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and Pete Peterson, its dean, and something they announced this week um, on behalf uh, on behalf of the name of the man who restarted the discussion when he was the U.S. Attorney General of what an uh, a jurisprudence of original intent means. That would be Edwin Meese, Reagan's attorney general. Pete Peterson, welcome back to the show. Congratulations on opening the Edwin Meese Institute for Liberty and the American Project at Pepperdine School. Thanks so much, Seth. Yeah, it's been an exciting week. Uh, we've been sitting on this for uh, a month or so, um, and the overall process with the donors um, who have been so gracious in committing this uh, $10 million endowment to support the new Mies Institute. That's a relationship that goes back uh, about a year and a half or two years ago. So uh, just so 
excited to finally uh, get this out in the news this week and uh, and more excited about what the future holds for this new institute. Well, I'm excited myself about it. And uh, when I first heard about it earlier in the week, I thought this is great. And uh, in a slow news week, we'll get a lot of national attention. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't exactly a slow news week, was it, Pete? That's right. Talk to us about the intent here, um, the original intent of the Edwin Meese Institute for Liberty. Talk to us about what you intend to to do with this at Pepperdine, what 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 the catalyst was and what the intention is. Yeah, well, it actually um, essentially endows an institute that builds on an initiative that we've had running here since 2017, which is this American Project on the Future of Conservatism, which has essentially argued for a more communitarian conservatism based on uh, a constitutionally ordered uh, system of government. And... Again, that kicked off back in 2017, and since then we've run a series of conferences. We've had a commissioned writing series over at Real Clear Politics and uh, and uh, a webinar series as well when, when COVID hit. So we've been running this uh, initiative on a kind of year-by-year basis, and uh, I always hoped and uh, envisioned that it could become an institute in and of itself, and that's when uh, some conversations began with a couple, uh, the donors to this effort, and they really took to it, uh, saw the need, especially within this policy school world as we're engaging uh, and teaching future policymakers and politicians that they needed to have this background, and so they made that commitment. Now, The connection to General Meese is an interesting one because we essentially had the the signed um, donor commitment the end of last year, the end of 2021, and we thought we were going to move forward with an institute named for the donors. But uh, right after they signed, they said, you know, if it makes more sense to find a name that's aligned with the mission of this institute and our mission as donors that might bring more uh, awareness to the institute and certainly engender more uh, support for it, uh, we're all ears. So why don't we engage in a series of conversations about that? And that led to the deliberations that ended in a conversation with Ed Fulner, uh, founder and former president of the Heritage Foundation and longtime friend of Ed Mises. Uh, and I spoke with him, I remember, as if it was yesterday, right here in the office with Ed Fulner to say, what would you think if we reached out to Ed to engage his interest in uh, having his name uh, adorn this institute? And he said, well, let's begin the conversation and uh, and uh, the rest is history. So it's, fanta- it's fantastic that this is happening and that Ed Meese is alive to see this happen yeah. and that you are doing it, Pete. And the reason I say that, California, you know, it has yep. set so many trends, good and ill. Uh, <laughs> one, of the, one of the great trends was obviously the governorship of Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And what a lot of people may not know, where did Ed Meese come from? Ed Meese yeah. came from being the district attorney, if I'm not mistaken, in what was it, Alameda County. Alameda County. Right, That's who right. impressed That's Reagan right. so much 
with yep. his, uh, for lack of a better phrase, just to use the trite one, his law and order approach to what was going on in places like Oakland, like Berkeley. Yeah. Ed Meese was not what you get from the DA in your county now, let's say. That's <laughs> okay, That's it was correct. a different view of yeah. this. Reagan becomes governor. Ed Meese becomes his advisor. Reagan becomes president. Ed Meese becomes the attorney general of the United States and starts a national conversation in legal circles on two fronts, really. One is, yeah, what is the jurisprudence of original intent? He went around the country giving speeches on this and bringing that phrase back into vogue. Uh, the other thing he did is, you know, as attorney general and as people will remember the early 80s, helped create an environment where the Federalist Society itself could begin and flourish. It really – Ed Meese really changed jurisprudence in this country. One could say Ronald Reagan, yes, he was the genus, but Ed Meese really was the species. Yeah, no, that's a very fair appraisal of his impact. And, of course, uh, his public service in that sense, his formal public service – uh, ended with the Reagan administration in early 19, well, in 1988. Um, but he continued on and continues on to this day to continue to uh, promote and argue for the importance of this understanding of the Constitution and its relevance to today's policy issues. He's been a senior fellow at both the Heritage Foundation and the Hoover Institution up at Stanford, and has written a number of books um, on issues uh, ranging from crime to uh, studies of the Constitution and the American founding itself. And so this is really uh, a life, uh, not just a career, but a life committed to these principles. And I have to tell you, Seth, we... The, the meeting uh, with Ed and his wife Ursula in their home in, in suburban D.C., uh, it was an out-of-body experience for me. Let me hold uh, you it, right there, you California yeah. man. <laughs> Let me hold you right there as we go to break. I want to hear about that, and I want to talk about the American Project at your school as well, Pete. I'm Seth Leibson. He is Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Check him out at Public Policy. Pepperdine.edu. Tremendous kudos and plaudits and congrats go to Pete and the Pepperdine School for starting this fantastic and desperately needed new center. I'm Seth. He's Pete. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, which just this week announced a great new program, the Edwin Meese Institute for Liberty. also want to talk to him about it. It's uh, it's it's housing uh, overall housing institution, which is their American Studies project. Um, but Pete, you were describing uh, that when you went to talk to uh, General Meese. You had, uh, I think the phrase you used was uh, something like a near out-of-body experience. I have to tell you, I once yeah. asked a friend who used that phrase with me. I said, what is an out-of-body experience? And the first said, well, it's kind of like when you leave your body, but you really don't. And I said, you really don't? And they go, no. And I said, okay, good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. You really don't. Okay. No, it's one, it's one of those things that you're in the midst of a conversation, and, and it's almost as if you – you have a perspective of looking back at yourself yeah. and 
saying, I can't believe I'm here. Yeah, I've right? done that throughout my yeah. life. I've had you and I have been probably, I'm guessing, I know the life you've lived and the lives you meet. Yeah. And I, I've had that too. It's it's a tremendous blessing when you step back and look about the people that a lot of people read about and who, you know, in many cases were our heroes and we've actually gotten to know them. You know, it's kind of a yeah. neat thing. But yeah, talk to us about meeting with Ed Meese. That's, yeah, that's so, a cool I mean, thing. it was Ed, Ed Fulmer set it up and uh, it's fair to say that he had, he had done a little bit of ground preparation there. Um, but along with Ed was the the husband of the couple who are uh, have made this incredible commitment to endowing the institute. And sure enough, we were there. This is the Melton family. It, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, in in their home, Ursula was there with Ed seated side by side, and uh, began the conversation around the vision uh, for the institute, the work we had been doing through the American Project, and how we saw this as the the next logical step, how it tied into the American uh, studies, the national policy studies portion of our curriculum, how it's grounded in uh, the core course, which is Roots of American Order. And uh, I think it's fair to say that he was taken aback a little. Um, but as we talked about it, he just uh, really warmed uh, to the idea and uh, and we shook hands on it and just again just uh, the, t- the timing couldn't be better you know the year before he died Abraham Lincoln said the American people uh, actually he said the world is uh, is uh, is needs a good definition of the word liberty especially right now is, yeah. the, the, and 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 it seems right now Pete uh, we need a good lesson plan, a good educational approach, a good pedagogy yeah. on what the Constitution is. It has been so tattered and torn. I can't it think of a better been, time. And particularly in this area of public policy, yeah. because so yeah. much of public policy as opposed to law right. comes out of the administrative state and is understood as only coming out of the administrative state. Right. And of course, the policy school here has always been grounded in this understanding that public policy is something that the public needs to be involved in, and and that not just at the ballot box, but also in volunteering, engaging in uh, policy uh, formation and service, public service delivery, and that that relationship between active citizenship and governing institutions is one in which uh, it's fair to say that has become unbalanced. And so this really is an effort uh, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom through the new Mies Institute uh, to make those arguments. This is a really great capstone, a really important capstone to what Ed Mies' boss talked about his entire political career. Um from his inaugural address in 1967 to his inaugural address as, as governor to his inaugural address as president in 1981, Ronald Reagan kept using this phrase. You used the phrase administrative state. This bothered Ronald Reagan yep. and Ed Meese a great deal. Reagan's phraseology on it was how we keep surrendering our rights. We have this 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 uh, practice of surrendering our rights to ever and greater government control. And he had this wonderful line. Again, you can find it in his gubernatorial as well as his presidential inaugural speeches. He had this wonderful line. He said, for people who aren't willing to govern themselves, 
what makes them think they have the right to govern someone else? This administrative mm. state, in other words, is the death knell of self-government for those of us that think self-government is important, which would be those of us on this call, on this radio show, as well as those of us who were around in 1776 and 1787 trying to make a country about self-government. Isn't that what this is about? It is. And, you know, I'm uh, in the midst of uh, reading and studying some of uh, Reagan's uh, addresses and materials for another uh, project that I'm involved in. And, and one of the phrases that he uses in response to the administrative state comes out of an address he gave uh, back in 1968 uh, while he was governor of California, and he called it the Creative Society. Oh. And this vision of uh, a society not known just by its government, but by its people, and that uh, the work of a society, as opposed to the work of a government, is done not only in the public sector, but also in the private sector and the nonprofit sector. Uh, that if we allow Americans to uh, respond to various policy or political challenges, chances are uh, we're going to find a way forward um, as opposed to dictating uh, from a class of experts how things should be resolved. Uh, that was really his response. He wasn't just attacking. He was also setting against the administrative state this creative society idea, which, again, had a number of themes that he explored uh, really for the rest of his life. Ronald Reagan, like Ed Meese, trusted the American people to do the right thing because he trusted the notion of self-government or believed in the notion of self-government. And that notion of creativity up against the notion of an administrative state or, or, or a top-down government-dictated uh, 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 state and country, that is so very Reagan. And that is so very Meese because you can't do it without the thing that Ed Meese was so consumed with when he was attorney general, which is individual rights. You can't have a creative society and you can't oppose uh, government dictate without individual rights. That's what he stood for more than anything else as attorney general Ed Meese. Right, and that's, again, the, the ordering of the role of government right. versus the role of citizens. And who's in charge uh, of who, right? Who's the boss right. here, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. I, I, um, which goes all the way straight through to, obviously, Reagan's farewell address, the importance absolutely. of we the people. And, um, and that goes straight through to something you guys are doing with regard to one of our most important freedoms that has been slowly uh, chipped away at, which is what we find in our First Amendment, freedom of speech, and something you guys are doing on that front as well. Can we pick up on that when we come right back? Absolutely. You can say a little bit, can't you? Yeah, It's a Friday afternoon in Malibu. What else could you possibly <laughs> want to be doing other than talking to the people in Arizona? Pete Peterson, we love you so much as we love the Pepperdine School of Public Policy of which you are dean. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you want to see a school alive doing vibrant and encouraging and intellectually deep things, you want to look at Pepperdine School of Public Policy. They just announced, as we've been talking with their dean, Pete Peterson, 
their uh, brand new at Mies Institute for Liberty. They have the American Project over at the Pepperdine School, and they are working on something interesting with regard to the First Amendment and free speech. Pete, you're hitting all the nails. Talk to me. What What are you guys doing? Um, got coming up on the free speech front? Yeah, a couple of weeks uh, from Monday, May 23rd, uh, we are welcoming. Uh, a number of uh, great speakers and panels uh, for Free Speech 2022, which will be a conference uh, looking at the challenges and opportunities uh, for free speech in the United States. It'll kick off with uh, Dr. Robbie George from Princeton uh, keynoting. And then we're going to get into a couple panels, one on uh, academia, uh, the next on uh, the journalistic uh, media, and then one looking at uh, big tech and uh, social media. And again, both uh, challenges and opportunities for free speech in each one of those uh, domains. We're going to conclude with a conversation with uh, one Brian Bartning, who started a group called uh, FAIR, which is um, a, a, an amazing nonprofit that's pulled together a number of great speakers um, on the issue of, of free speech, particularly in, on issues of, of race. And so um, just uh, really looking forward to it. One of the most interesting things to me, by the way, Robbie George is one of my favorite human beings. Uh, yeah. Quick story. Uh, I saw him give a uh, speech once. It so interested me way back in the uh, early 90s. Uh, well, it wouldn't have been early. It would have been mid because I, I out of nowhere as a, just a young little nothing emailed him. You could find people's emails easily or more easily in those days. And I emailed him how much I liked it. He wrote back to me. Wow. <laughs> I wrote back to him. And the next thing I knew is he sent me a bunch of his books and we became really good friends. I mean, just ah. such a such an accessible, this great, tremendous public intellect, you know, yeah. tremendous public intellect. I don't think people know what a great scholar Robert George is and activist. I yeah. believe oh, if yeah. I'm not mistaken... He is the only attorney in the United States of America who actually had as a client and represented Mother Teresa once. I'm, uh, pretty, I'm, I'm right about that. I'm pretty sure that. About I that. would not. Yeah, would you not can ask him about me. that. He represented Mother Teresa in the United States courts. Robert P. George did. One of the interesting things, really one of the most interesting things to me when you're talking about this, Pete, and the, the, the effort to preserve free speech and, and reteach its, its, its foundations here – is the incursions against it, the cabining of it, seems to always be around just those most important of issues, the ones you just outlined, you know, uh, yeah. race issues. Why do we have to – the most important issues are the first ones to be censored. Isn't that interesting? Do the opponents of free speech, do the tyrants among us, do the authoritarians among us, do they think they can only have their day and win – their cause by silencing opposition? And if so, what does it say about their day and their cause that they can't win in the open light? They can't win an open debate. They can't win with an open vote. You see a little bit with the Roe thing. You see this a little bit with Roe. They don't want people voting on it. They don't want people debating it. They don't want people talking about it. They'd rather have nine people vote on it than 7,500 people, which is the number of state legislators in America, right? It's it's Yeah, you know, that that very much is uh, the, the issue. And, of course, all the public opinion polls out there 
including ones that are being done on America's college campuses, uh, describe what we've talked about before as this eggshell culture, Mm -hmm. where increasingly people of all ages, but I would argue that many of these trends started on college campuses, uh, are increasingly made to fear uh, speaking their mind, even to do it in a civil way, on a variety of issues, uh, political and cultural. And, of course, if we find ourselves in a place where we can't have civil discussions around many of these most important issues, and obviously uh, the road decision is, is going to open up a whole series of those decisions state by state, um, then we're really setting ourselves up for uh, an enduring period of conflict here. Let me pause on that, this short segment, come back and have you expand a little bit on that. And the notion, I think it was Robert Jackson, Supreme Court Justice, who said the First Amendment was Felix Frankfurter, said the First Amendment was never designed to protect the kind of speech about things that doesn't matter much, right? It was designed to protect the things that do matter much in this society. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu is the website. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, which just this week announced a great new uh, project institution, and it is named after Ed Meese, uh, the Meese Institute. Ed Meese was, of course, Ronald Reagan's attorney general, still with us, obviously. Uh, not a lot of people from the Reagan cabinet still with us. Bill Bennett, Ed Meese, I don't mean to give anyone short shrift, but that would be – a those would be the two names that come to mind, uh, Pete. We are, we yeah, are. Yeah, George um, Schultz's recent passing. Yeah, after it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's that's right. We recently lost Schultz. It's uh, kind of sad to see these names that loomed so large uh, in our younger uh, years. But Ed Ed Meese is uh, one of the great ones and one of the grand ones. And I just can't think of a better thing than to name an institute after him. And as we're talking about protecting the constitutional rights that Ed Meese was uh, so well known for in his tenure and the individual rights. We're talking about the first one, the first freedom in our Bill of Rights, well, after religion, speech. And uh, I did get it wrong. It was Robert Jackson who I was thinking of, not Frankfurter, Mm. about the freedom of speech, the freedom to differ is not limited to the things that don't matter much. He said that would be a mere shadow of freedom. And it is interesting. We've come to a point where increasingly large, shall we say, large precincts, large chunks of public policy have been off limit for discussion in not only America's classrooms, but in social media and in the public square. Looks like we're maybe turning a corner on some of that. You at Pepperdine have, of course, been a big part of steering that car we're turning the corner on. But you said something in our very first segment I wrote down. So much of what we deal with really does start on our college campuses. And, Pete, um, we've moved a lot in the last 30 years on what was contained to the college campus and what has leaked into the larger <clears throat> public. It's, it's kind of – I think of it as a lab leak or an ivory tower leak that is in many ways much more dangerous than what came out of the Wuhan lab which is the notion that there should 
be closed questions in an open society. No, it's not what Pepperdine stands for. It is sad to watch that so many campuses do stand for that. And that view has infected the minds of an awful lot of people who have now seen themselves as not grand inquisitors but grand censors. They got jobs. They got jobs in companies called Facebook. They got jobs at companies called Twitter. Ironically, the places where we have these or used to discussions. Say something about the college campus ethos and how so much that we live with does really start at the college campus and sometimes leaks into the public for good and sometimes for ill, right? It does, and the data is clear. Uh, One of the, I guess, silver linings as people become more and more aware of how ideological many of our college campuses have become is that we're starting to see more and more good survey data come out. And one of those uh, data points is uh, developed by a group called the Higher Education Research Institute, which is based at UCLA. And one of the things that they've found is that the ideological composition of tenure-track faculty across the country, a question they ask every single year in their survey, has changed dramatically just in the last 30 years. Uh, and specifically what's happened is that while those saying describing themselves as conservative faculty have remained fairly consistent, oddly enough, over the last 30 years, right around 15 to 20 percent, where you've seen the greatest transition is in the difference between those who describe themselves as political moderates to those who describe themselves as politically progressive. And in that, you've really seen this change between the transition of what I call the greatest generation of faculty, uh, those who came of age with the GI Bill and the after World War II and the Korean War, getting their PhDs in the mid to late 50s and early 60s, they beginning to retire in the mid to late 80s and early 90s, and then those replacing them coming out of their PhD programs in the 60s and 70s, which is arguably the most radicalized period uh, that we've experienced. In what we were talking about years. last time, right? Education as a revolutionary act, right? Or teaching That's as a revolutionary right. act, right? Yeah. And so with that, what's the, the added layer that makes it really so pernicious is this awareness or belief that speech is violence. Right. And so once you combine an ideological monoculture with an understanding of speech that it can be understood as violence and interpreted by the listener as violence as opposed to some objective standard, you find yourself in these situations in many American college classrooms, and certainly we're seeing this earlier on in high schools and and even uh, middle schools, that uh, people feel like they have to squelch what they how they want to express themselves. How how does that manifest? Speech is violence because it hurts someone's feelings to hear an opinion they don't agree with, right? That's that's what we're talking about, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Speech is violence. And generally that understanding is is when somebody is looking to express what might be seen as a more conservative or traditional point of view. And you can look at that on a variety of different issues. And if that then becomes the accepted norm for classroom discussion, uh, obviously that's a that's a perfect recipe for people uh, squelching uh, what they how they would express themselves. 
It's interestingly and uniquely one-sided. I have to tell you in all candor, um, you've been around the campuses much more broadly than I have, although I've done my fair share. I have never, Pete, you tell me, I have never, ever heard someone with a conservative perspective say to a liberal articulator or a left-wing proponent that what they say hurts their feelings. I've never heard a conservative yeah. say your speech is violence. I've never heard it. It seems to be unidirectional. Well, and, and again, I think what, what is happening is the conjoining of two things. One is an already ideologically progressive environment with this other layer of speech being violent. Yeah. yeah. And so when you have faculty in a position where they're so ideological, that's where the enforcement happens. Yep, yeah, that's right. Pete, thanks for spending some of your Friday with us. I, I just never take it for granted, knowing how busy you are, knowing uh, the beautiful environs you're in. Uh, people can uh, be part of that by going to publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu and looking at the great programs Pete and uh, his school are doing. Thanks for everything you are and do, Pete. Great to be with you, Seth. Really enjoyed it. Went went by too fast. It really did. It really did. That means we're having a good time, right? All right, brother. I hope your weekend goes fast for the same reason. I wish you a good weekend, and uh, we'll talk in another trice. God bless you, Pete. Godspeed. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. If you are uh, in the market for a great investment opportunity, a really re- unique one with a fantastic return for investors, I want you to check out my friends at Y Refi. What they are offering is a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y Refi is a due diligence approved firm run by really great people who are doing really well by helping others. Helping others what? Dig out of debt the right way by doing the right thing in paying off their debts. Never uh, endorse an investment opportunity unless I truly believed in it. I've spent a lot of time with these guys. I love their business model. I love their testimonials. I love what they do. I want you to check them out too. InvestYRefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. They're a local company. You can visit them. They will not give you a sales pitch. They're just delighted to tell you about what they're doing because, as I say, it is really great. Check them out. Investyrefi.com or call 855-316-3087. I'll close with this, Robert Jackson. Those who begin coercive elimination of dissent soon find themselves eliminating dissenters. Compulsory unification of consent achieves only the unanimity of the graveyard. It seems trite but necessary to say that the First Amendment to our Constitution was designed to avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. There is no mysticism in the American concept of the state or of the nature or origin of its authority. We set up government by consent of the governed, and the Bill of Rights denies those in power any legal opportunity to coerce that consent. Authority here is to be controlled by public opinion, not public opinion by authority. Think about that. Think about that when you think about disinformation boards. Think about that and think about that when you hear people tell you you don't have the right to vote to protect innocent human life. 
authority here is to be controlled by public opinion, not public opinion by authority. That was said in the height of World War II by a Democratic appointed justice at a time when it would have been really easy and to some very important to squelch debate and individual rights. My gosh, we were in World War II. Well, we aren't in World War II now. I don't believe we're in World War III. But to listen to the left, you'd think we were in something close to Armageddon. We're not, folks. We're not. Don't submit to the crisis industrial complex. God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson, and until Monday, class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 